Hello, and welcome to Our Food is Our Future, presented by Eat Well Saskatchewan and the College of Pharmacy and Nutrition at the University of Saskatchewan. I'm your host and food explorer, Mo Matthew. This week's guest is Dr. Vincent Ziffel. Dr. Ziffel is an Associate Professor of Chemistry at First Nations University of Canada in Regina. His research interests include traditional knowledge and Indigenous sciences, as well as chemistry of medicinal plants. He is also passionate about food chemistry and is working towards the clarity of medicinal compounds found in traditional foods. He's also developed Chem 101, Chemistry of Food and Cooking, which incorporates food chemistry, plant medicine, and Indigenous food traditions. He also sets up food labs that teach Indigenous food pathways, sovereignty, and sustainability from traditional food knowledge keepers. He's a promoter of all things STEM, and with the added A for arts, design, and Indigenous culture, everybody, this is Vincent. So today's guest is Vincent Zivel. He's our instructor from the First Nations University in Regina. Welcome, Vincent. I don't actually call you by your rightful name, so it's kind of confusing to me. You want to tell <laughs> us about yourself and where you're from? Sure. Um, thank you, Chef Mo. <laughs> I guess Dr. Vincent Ziffel um, from First Nations University of Canada here in Regina at our Regina campus. I teach chemistry at First Nations University of Canada, and I do research in chemistry, biochemistry, and medicinal plants as well, thanks to the work that we do with elders and community and surrounding areas. And so um, even though I have a more, I guess, conventional chemistry upbringing, I've been influenced by or educated by members of our university to understand better important things like medicinal plants. And this crosses over into uh, indigenous food traditions as well and um, healing traditions as well. So. We do a lot of things at First Nations University of Canada. Where I, where I started, though, uh, was just across the road over at the University of Regina. I have been born in Regina and lived here most of my life, apart from doing my PhD at the U of A in uh, Edmonton. But um, when I returned from those experiences and came back to Regina, I guess in 2010, it feels like ages ago, I had an opportunity to learn how to teach in a better way than I could as a grad student, just doing labs and things and quickly found myself having opportunities to work with students at FNU. So at First Nations University of Canada, um, we quickly understood that it's important to think about Indigenous science as a key core component potentially in a chemistry class. And that's not how I learned about chemistry when I was young, and it certainly wasn't part of my curriculum. So that's really opened up my eyes and has, uh, I guess, taken the blinders off and allowed me to work with a lot of interesting people who've been generous with their time. And so now our courses do have, to some extent, uh, incorporation of Indigenous science into things like organic chemistry courses, but especially chemistry of food and cooking, which is Chem 101, which is a course we built. And um, that allows us to intertwine or braid together Indigenous food traditions, discussions about food sovereignty, and chemistry, as well as uh, the fine art of food and cooking, all in the same kind of class. And I think it's pretty great, too, to be able to have a food lab where you can eat your experiments. And I've you know, gone with the flow, I'm sure, quite a few times in my life as I progress through my degrees. But um, I do like that we get to uh, reverse things a little bit um, or change them up and do things in a very unconventional way for a, a class called Chem 101. Uh, so that was intentional. 
I love that you've done that. When I heard you were doing that, it's been a few years ago now, but I was really excited. And then when we kind of reached out to each other to kind of go through what that was, I mm. just love the idea of of having that breakdown and it being it's scientific, but it's traditional based. And then it really it becomes uh, a day to day thing because you mm. learn how to do things better. I just I I thought it was great. I think so, too. I, I've become marginally better at being a, a cook. I, I've accidentally <laughs> called myself a chef like once and realized that I've got a long way to go. Um, but it's allowed me to become a little more competent. Obviously, I want to, when I do demonstrations, appear somewhat competent. Uh, <laughs> but um, our students actually teach us a lot, too. They teach each other a lot, but I've learned a lot about their uh, traditions. We have international students, too, in our courses. And when they are able to work on their final projects, they uh, introduce a lot of things that have been important to them for ages, that have been important to their families forever. Um, and it's generous of them to share that with uh, their peers and instructor, too. We lots of times in this in this programming, we say, uh, traditional food, and we sometimes are are really making it very specific, uh, indigenous or Métis or Saskatchewan, like those traditional terms for us are at that. But uh, I sometimes um, forget that traditional foods are traditional foods to all the cultures um, of Canada and the world, because that's that's the world we live in. But what what does the term traditional food mean to you? Well, I am someone who's a, a descendant, obviously, of my my father who was adopted, and and um, he he didn't know uh, his roots very well when he was younger, and I was left a little confused by that. Um, my first name, I think, is of Italian origin. Middle name Alan is French, and my last name is Ziffel, which is German. I'm none of those things at all, so I've never really had a firm grasp on what a tradition was. And I remember going over to friends' homes and watching them run through how they do Sunday supper and how they pay respect to perhaps a recipe from a Baba or a, an elder or someone who, you know, was important to them, who shared that knowledge. And again, I was kind of at a loss because I didn't have those kinds of experiences and had a very loving uh, upbringing. Um, <laughs> but maybe fine cuisine or, or traditions tied to cuisine wasn't really a factor. Um, it was more about, you know, just being generous with each other and kind and conversing. But anyway, um, through... Uh, conversation through ceremony through working with our elders helper and the elders of our university at first nations university of canada and also elsewhere um, stories have been shared about food traditions and both elders other traditional knowledge keepers and indigenous chefs have all told important and varying stories about what matters to them about traditional cuisine and sometimes when speaking to a chef i'll learn that um, post-contact recipes or ingredients do not factor or they shouldn't be considered part of traditional indigenous cuisine throughout canada or turtle island uh, i mean north america and um, others would say that there are important components of um, indigenous food histories over the last several hundred years and so there's a lot of different viewpoints and it makes it more challenging to have a better view or a, like a complete view but i don't think that's ever been really the goal because we know that each individual that we work with shares a new story or uh, shares food with us that 
come from different places. So um, for me, traditional cuisine, traditional Indigenous cuisine from around Canada is almost always firmly rooted in the plants and animals that um, have lived on this land um, since uh, time immemorial. And um, there are so many different ways to address how to create a traditional cuisine based on where someone hails from. Um, I'm a non-Indigenous person. I'm very fortunate to be able to work closely with those that share traditional knowledge, that keep it, but generously share it. And um, even through quick glances at programming, really excellent programming like Red Chef Revival uh, with Chef Rich Francis and uh, Chef says it not away. Everyone has a, a different perspective on what is considered indigenous and traditional. So um, I remember having a chat with with Chef Rich Francis, and his comment was Bannock, for instance, was perhaps not you know part of a traditional cuisine, but at the same time, it would always be something that's important to uh, indigenous cuisine throughout Canada. And understanding its history was important, so he shared that with me too. So I think that's important. Um, I asked my students questions on their final exam, actually, recently. I shouldn't say too much because I don't know if all of them have got the marks <laughs> back. <laughs> but, you know, looking at and talking about Indigenous cuisine and food traditions like that, um, I asked about, you know, their perspectives on the history, and the past, essentially, the present and also the future. And uh, we have Indigenous students in our course and also non-Indigenous students in our course. Um, but I was happy to see that their responses were largely very thoughtful and extended back farther than I thought they knew. Uh, so they did their research and understood in a sensitive and respectful way. But they also understand how traditional cuisine is changing, how it can sometimes be a hybrid in some ways. And again, it depends on the chef that's doing the work. That may be their style or technique, um, incorporating um, other types of cuisine into their cuisine or using what they have, but in a way that's respectful, that's more so like an Indigenous food tradition standpoint. And then talking about the future um, of Indigenous cuisine in Canada, and one student mentioned, I had no idea that there were so many books, so many cookbooks and other types of literature that now exist that all appear to be published in the last almost 10 years here in Canada and in some parts of North America too, I mean, in the States as well. Um, and so they realize it's more full-fledged than they ever imagined. And if that's the case, and if this is the uh, thing over just the last 10 years, you know, what's going to happen in the next 10 to 20? So a couple students did mention, I hope the trajectory is good, right? I hope that people become more respectful thanks to these shared stories. I hope they understand that there were important things happening here before uh, settlers arrived. And of course, they know this or they want to, you know, shout loudly that it's an important part of history here, not just within Canada, but before Canada was Canada and even during. And I don't know, this is all happening in a chemistry course. And um, they're (laughs) managing chemistry basics. And then all of a sudden we're talking about food sovereignty and it gets maybe not terribly political, but you do sort of have to make a decision about where your heart lies and share it in a a fairly honest way. And again, it's not something I ever recalled doing in my chemistry courses when I was younger. So to me, I find it profoundly moving to somehow manage that while using Indigenous food science to elevate their understanding of uh, the periodic table and what everything is made up of and how it can be manipulated at least from a, a, a chemistry or chemical standpoint. 
Yeah, jeez. <laughs> it wouldn't even come to mind to have all this information shared in a chemistry class. Mm-hmm. So that's that's uh, really neat to see. When you're talking about the traditional foods, and even though I do I do agree with the people that say it has to be, you know, exactly the way it was way, way back when before everything was abruptly changed, you know, like uh, all of our food systems. But so many things have changed since then. Like it wasn't just um, people coming over. It was the seeds changed and the, the seasons changed and the world's uh, heat and moisture and so many different things have come into it. And I actually like the, having the conversations around what traditional foods mean because of those things like where where is your cutoff and well when you said they make foods from their areas that's so profound because people come from say deep north they don't eat like people from the south and you know that's just it it's how it works so um lots of lots of information that you have to take in to consider for sure Mm -hmm. i i think of uh somebody like uh I mean, I'm a I'm a fanboy. I, I I watch my chef's table and I try to learn of, uh, from many different chefs and their perspectives um, and their stories. It's always a story, right? And it's always a struggle, and it it is relatable. But I'm thinking of somebody like Chef, I think Dan Barber from Blue Hill Farms, if I'm getting that correctly. And yep. uh, you know, he, he's he's of the farm to table movement, and he takes it fairly extremely in a certain direction that's helpful for sure. And watching that, watching that episode or reading his book um, reminded me that, hey, um, Indigenous peoples for not hundreds, but thousands, many thousands of years have been doing this farm, or I guess you could call it field to table thing naturally, right? And of course, he's fighting the systems that exist now that cause people to think it's wise to, you know, ship an orange halfway across a continent. Um, It's interesting that if we as a, as a collective uh, at this university anyhow i guess uh start thinking about what cuisine lies just outside our doorstep um it changes how thoughtful you can possibly be efficient you can be and um you know sincerely appreciative you can be about those types of dishes and the second year foraging and doing that and i've had the opportunity to do this with several elders it's a, an honor really to spend time with them the second year doing that you you feel connected and and it changes um it empowers you i guess you can say it allows you to feel like wow all these tools around me or all these resources or all these gifts were always here and now i know how to see things in a slightly different way and I guess I've I haven't fought to do that. I've I've made my way to that understanding. But watching students do that so rapidly in, in like a semester is pretty amazing. I could make cereal in in undergrad, and I could maybe not burn water. Um, you know, I, I did almost nothing, and I went off to grad school. And somebody said, "Hey, we're going out for sushi," and I had never had uh, sushi or raw fish before, uh, prepared in that particular way and served in that way. So. I forgot that and started teaching this course years ago and realized, wait a second, a lot of the things I'm sharing that I think are like common knowledge may not be for every single one of the students in the course, but there will always be a handful that do understand that or want to share more. So then they take over and talk to their class about what they're interested in. Um, But it's a big growth thing, um, a big journey. And we hope chemistry can be a journey for a lot of students, but I think um, you know, our desire to eat, to feel full and safe and content and, and um, to be able to, to grow uh, is always with us. So, you know, if I can kind of glue <laughs> chemistry onto that, 
so that every time those students either make a bowl of cereal or maybe their own sashimi, um, <laughs> they think, oh, yeah, that chemistry course, it kind of shined a light on something I hadn't thought about too much. <laughs> well, yeah, well, we weren't very sushi savvy a long time ago, so <laughs> probably that works out. Um, you mentioned a couple things, and I just want to go back to them because you were talking about foraging for food, which is which is great. And also that you were foraging for medicines. And I think um, we kind of go back to this and kind of beat it to death. But um, we all kind of take for granted that um, uh, food is nourishment and food is, you know, fuel for our bodies. But we also, too, believe that food is medicine. And so you brought those two things together. Do you kind of endorse the idea that food is medicine? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I. Uh didn't know this as well as I should have, or at least I wasn't ready to know it a little while back, so almost a decade ago. And I remember um, going on a, a picking session with the late Elder Harold Lavalley in Piepot First Nation. And I don't think I was pestering, but I asked, you know, around the corners, <laughs> that where we'll find the medicine. Uh, we, were, we were getting covered in ticks and it was a tough, hot day. And of course, we had to put in a lot of work and effort, and that was the point. But um, he said, medicine, you know, eat this. This is medicine. And he did so in a respectful way, but he pointed to the nearest plant just on a, off his shoulder, and it was Saskatoon berries. And so he said, Vince, this food is medicine. And um, I hope you understand that it's not, there's no real, you know, division, right? And so um, I'm paraphrasing, but that made me wonder uh, a lot about where or what scope my research would entail if I continued doing this type of work. And so I got home, got back to work, and realized that these lines that we set up between things, these genres, so to speak, are artificial constructs. And we have a lot of that in science, right? We have to make a decision, you know, what side of a line or the divide or the chasm does this lie? And that helps us understand maybe the properties of something, um, its potential maybe in the hands of a good organic synthetic chemist. But when talking about plant medicines and indigenous cuisine and traditional foods, those um, I think are, are one in the same, um, although occasionally discussion about the properties of these things kind of gets divided into two things. My feeling is that traditional cuisine uh, is comprised of staples that are very healthy, nourishing, and are largely plant-based. And as a chemist, I know that many of these plants produce secondary metabolites, so coming from a biochemical and a chemistry standpoint. And those are super useful molecules that would take ages and ages for a chemist to synthesize step-by-step step in a fume hood of a lab. And yet Mother Nature is doing this all the time. And to me, that's, you know, it should be a given for most people who are plant biologists, botanists, etc. But that innate beauty at that sort of level, that molecular sort of level, is sometimes something that escapes uh, students and also <laughs> faculty members like myself. So it's sort of, I think um, Elder Harold was shining a light on something that I kind of took for granted and it was, you know, staring me right in the face. And um, from that point on, you know, I've asked questions like that of my students too. You know, what do you 
consider, you know, to be medicine versus just strict nourishment. And of course, if it was just about proteins, carbohydrates, lipids, and water, then maybe we wouldn't be talking so much about medicines. But there are so many other interesting things to explore in your own, I guess, backyard. And even then, like the the four, I guess, elements of food, those four that I just listed, including water, um, all have their own special relationship uh, with us. Um, I'm thinking of the late Elder Florence Allen, um, who taught me to or suggested I did and my students do listen to plants a little bit more effectively and think more about the water spirit. And these things don't find themselves very often in a chemistry textbook, but if we can use discussion about core elements of cuisine that we rely on to live and gain a bit more respect for them, then we can probably more respectfully listen to those that maybe know more than us about those types of traditions, histories, and an understanding that was, you know, not something I was aware of anyway, until I spoke with uh, Elder Florence. When you're looking at that, and you're saying nourishment and medicine kind of in the same breath, and I think that the part where lots of chefs have trouble separating food as medicine because we we think medicine comes in a jar or a you know a bottle and we buy those things but that's not actually the case and i think you using the the reference of a, a saskatoon berry just shows like well um yeah you you eat them but what does it do for us? Like, what's the what's what's behind the sweet little berry, you know? So mm-hmm. how can it help us out? Because when you do those foraging classes or you go out into the wild and you're you're instructed by the knowledge keepers that are out there and they walk you through and say, this is good for this. Well, some things taste terrible. You know, mm-hmm. um, they're they're stringent and nasty and they have their own flavor. Well, not all mel- medicines fun to eat, um, no. but some some is. And so when uh, chefs look at this food as medicine, they, they kind of want to put it in two spots. But really, traditional foods are the ones that weren't processed. So it's straight off the land, straight off healthy, yeah. good, clean land. And so that's that great thing about saying food is medicine because the land itself was was yeah. uh, the medicine before. So it's good to think of it like that. Yeah, I, it's interesting. Um, many don't have experiences living in harmony with nature. And it's oftentimes a battle or a war where you have to sort of thrust yourself onto a problem and extract resources or do something like that to survive. And I know that sometimes there's a big struggle um, and a lot of people have created a great deal of harm by overextending themselves and extracting, you know, resources from from where we live. And it's always about, you know, the cream rising to the top. It's always about distillation. It's always about um, essentially purifying the essence of something when we're thinking about the more Western or Eurocentric standpoint. That's the way it always feels anyway, coming from a chemistry point of view. And we see medicine sometimes as the essence of something that we've captured, purified, put in pill form, for instance, to essentially, you know, bottle magic that can save somebody's life. And it works. But honestly, a lot of those medicines are around us. And if they become part of your cuisine, you know, you may not have to, I guess, consume them in adulterated or concentrated form, I guess you could say, right? 
there is something special about being able to do that and we're in the lab all the time um, and occasionally we're distilling something to purify a solvent so we can do a, a reaction well so these techniques are absolutely necessary but when we look at that as a non-holistic way of functioning i think that it's really refreshing to realize that it's as simple sometimes as having reverence and understanding uh, about a particular plant species and uh, what it's useful for as is or dried and used as is so um to me it kind of goes not against but in a different direction from my upbringing as a chemist but um, i love how working more often with indigenous food and healing traditions helps me continually reflect on what i've learned and kind of decide for myself what do i need to unlearn or where should my understanding or passion for this change because it's maybe not the full story or the most healthy way of doing things or approaching the problem yeah you wear more than two hats i think (laughs) (laughs) i i get confused from time to time it is tricky right um, I, I, I get distracted and I think I've decided that this is good because it allows me to satisfy many, I guess, interests, right, to be interdisciplinary. And it was funny because I would used to say multidisciplinary and then I realized there's power in collaboration, hybridization or working with biologists, knowledge keepers, business administrators to do work that you can't do if you're just focusing on purely chemistry. And if teaching is important, and of course it is, to become a better teacher is to probably become better rounded so that you can individually look at each student, hopefully, and address their you know concerns or needs that semester. It's impossible to, to do this perfectly well, but I just love how in Chem 101, for instance, Students come to this with different sort of interests or passions, and we find a place for that. We allow them to sort of extend themselves in a direction that they aren't just comfortable doing, but where they can hone a talent or a passion that they didn't previously think could be addressed in a 100-level class. So that's my hope anyway, and I think I've seen some changes there and uh, some positive developments. Yeah, I, I think I want to sit in on that class. <laughs> um, that sounds like a good one. It, it'll be good. Um, it, it is good, but it'll be great when we can do it more frequently. Um, the pandemic was really hard for us, and I, I taught it via VC or video conference, and we had students throughout Canada taking part. And so we sent them the food lab. So they were doing chemistry in their own kitchens. And I had a few comments from parents or whomever they were living with, like, is this wise <laughs> to not have a lab instructor here but of course it was um uh, essentially they were doing uh, a manipulation of food and cooking but using chemical principles to to elevate the cuisine and to analyze things uh, in a reasonable way um but anyway uh in class we do a lot of demonstrations and here i am via vc and making a steak and showing students that 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 old adage you know you flip a steak once or a burger once to make the best burger isn't the best way because the whole idea is to ramp up the temperature on the exterior at least of the steak uh, efficiently so flipping it every 30 seconds actually works pretty great so i'm sitting there teaching flipping steaks they can hear it sizzling and i'm talking about the maillard reaction and stuff and you know i'm thinking i'm pretty competent here but then afterwards i realize how foolish i i'm showing them the steak uh, i'm showing them the sourdough but nobody can smell it. Nobody can 
experience it. Nobody uh. can buy it. And I know that as an undergraduate, I wasn't always able to have a meal when I wanted to or needed it most. And it didn't seem like the best way to bring people in. So we did that once. And when we got back to the in-person stuff, then that started again. But occasionally you'll have a professor down the hallway who will say something like, we need to coordinate your class with my class better. We had our midterm <laughs> exam and all we could smell was caramelized onions. And some students really love that stuff. And I said, I know they should line up uh, outside my class to have some soup after. It's like, but they were writing a midterm and, you know, close the door. But that just scrumptious. No. We couldn't prevent it from, you know, distracting everybody. So there you go. <laughs> that's that's kind of one of those things, right? Core memories. And they're built like that. And so those smells will take you back to a place or a time in your life. And yeah. and if they hit right, it's just amazing. Like when I make tortillas as part of my Métis tradition, that's it. There's this sweet spot when I put in enough spices to the, the meat stuff. And when it hits, it's like, oh, it's like I'm there. I'm back in my mom's kitchen and my grandmas are around. And it's this whole yeah. thing. I can see it all in my head. So I know I know what they're talking about. It's, it's yeah. something that's... Uh, extra factory i guess yeah yeah um, yeah it's it sparks uh something and um of course it does uh if you time things correctly and offer food when people are hungry of course it will and um if you kind of you know it's not a bait and switch but it's like here's some food and also a lesson um <laughs> about the bore model of the atom <laughs> uh it's like okay cool I'm, I'm all right with this it could be as simple as ice cream really because i mean it's a triphasic um cuisine um you can talk about all states of matter and every single important ingredient in food within you know the discussion just about that and then the magic of you know creation of this tasty very simple treat and why it works based on it being triphasic so um yeah there's a lot of ways to sweeten i guess things and and make it more nourishing lots of puns in the class too um, I'll say stuff. I'm, I'm not very funny. I, I said to my wife at one point, um, my partner, she said, um, you know, what it was one of your key attributes or something? What do you think about yourself? And I was like, I'm, well, I'm, at least I'm a little funny. And she looked at me and she's like, looking? No. Um, she said, I don't know. Um, humor isn't your thing. And maybe she was just trying to temper my expectations <laughs> about stand up or something. And, um, anyway, um, so I, I rely on puns in the class and they're always, you know, cringy, but they they resonate. Right. You know, like food for thought. Uh, ha, 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 and then we go. <laughs> but I mentioned to my students, too, like the fact that there are so many, you know, uh, phrases or idioms around food just screams why it's so darn important for us. Um, and um, it's funny. It's a little bit lighthearted. Um, but that approach, I think, uh, brings students to chemistry in a more sincere way where they're a little less apprehensive, I hope. Um, and some have said, I think I'll do chemistry 104 now, or how do we get to organic chemistry next? Um, and so I think that means it's working. Good. Well, good luck with that and, and keep it up. That's, that's good for everything. Um, when we're talking about um institutions and going to schools or going uh into places of education or correction or 
or even healthcare. Uh, institutions in Saskatchewan are trying to include more traditional or indigenous foods into their food service systems. And this is kind of across the board in Saskatchewan is, has been happening for a while now. But do you see that as a, a positive way forward? Oh, for sure. I, I think so. I I believe that if um, those choices, the decision making um, is uh, left to uh, Indigenous communities, that would be fantastic. I know that, again, it starts with the land. So if there is, there are resources um, either ceded back to or, or controlled by Indigenous communities to do this work, that would be the great start point in my opinion, and I could be missing something, but I think about agencies like Indigenous Works Luminary and others where they're talking about developing um, Indigenous agriculture, uh, done so um, with stewardship or control by Indigenous communities or knowledge keepers. And um, of course, like we talked about earlier, there's so many different types of cuisine depending on where um, you are what land I guess you stand on. Um, but, um, you know, I could see myriad different solutions um, coming from many places, even just within Saskatchewan, which is a huge um, resource of, of great people who have different backgrounds. Agreed. That's, that's, I guess, the good starting point. You start with good, clean land under proper management and you go from there. Mm. Um so we're, we're wrapping it up. So like a steak, uh, it's pretty well done. Um, but we'll, we'll have one more question. And I always kind of finish with this. But uh, do you have any advice for any youth listening to this podcast? Um, so it, uh, we usually say in health and wellness, but we should say almost to the part of education too. But do you have any advice? I guess being able to look back now on uh, choices I made uh, as a uh, late teenager, you know, deciding to go to university, for instance, um, I didn't really have um, a good understanding about what I would be good at. And I'm still trying to find that, to be honest. And if I continue to try to learn, at least in the presence of students, they'll realize that, you know, I'm walking the walk as well as I talk it. Um, And so ultimately... Um, keep keep your your I guess horizons open to you if you can. Um, realize that if you are deciding to take post secondary education, that um, if you make a decision or or you know join a program, um, it's never too late to um, follow a dream or or spark passion elsewhere. Um, I think that uh, it's very important that if you decide to go into academia or do something on the, I guess, foundation you build throughout undergraduate study, that it's the work that you really enjoy. Um, Work is hard. And of course, there'll be times when you want to perhaps step away from the the, the profession or the studies that you started with. But um, if you aren't, I guess, dreaming it, if you're not occasionally daydreaming about that thing that you've signed up to do, if it's not something that, you know, you maybe don't wake up from an inspiring dream from and quickly write down a theory or something. But if it's not something that, you know, as you're walking home, you frequently ponder and imagine yourself in in the service of doing or doing uh, 
as a profession, then just think about what else inspires you, right? Hopefully something healthy, hopefully something that you can see yourself doing for a long time. Um, what I watch in undergrad studies is uh, our students that are transforming from you know one perspective to the next or one vantage point to a new one. And um, obviously it's not, you're not done learning when you're done undergrad studies at First Nations University of Canada, but now you have a different sort of vantage point. Uh, a changed skill set for sure, but um, a passion for something I hope um, that you can, you know, continue to do happily to help others as well. So that's another important thing. Um, I know that students have said something like, you know, you seem passionate and you always knew what you want to do clearly. And I cut them <laughs> off, not rudely, but I, I say, whoa, whoa, I had no idea. I really had no idea. And, um, you know, I, I, I just remained open to opportunities. Um, and followed the things that seemed healthy, but also um, that excited me and, and continued to increase the passion in the work that I do. Um, and again, as you're studying for a biochemistry final or a statistics final, you may not really feel that passion. And I understand it can't be that way all the time. But if the, the overall art, the overarching goal uh, is something that continues to provide you with motivation um, and excites you, then I think you're on the right track. Good stuff. Cool. Well, well, thank you very much, um, um, Vincent. Uh, still, again, I'm having troubles with that name. <laughs> it's Ooh. more Z to me. So, but, so uh, Ziffel. Yes. Ziffel. <laughs> Funny. Uh, but thank you very much for your time. It was it was great having you today um, and sharing your a passion about uh, not only food, but chemistry, learning, and uh, making it accessible to everybody. So I really, really appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much, Mo. It's been fun. Um, it's nice to be able to share a bit of my story, but uh, the story of many of the students that we get the opportunity to work with. Great. Okay. Thank you very much and have a great day. Yeah, for sure. And thanks for the pie too, the tortier. Yes. You're very welcome. Uh, hopefully we'll get to talk to you in the new year. Awesome. Thanks, Mo. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I would like to take this opportunity to thank Eat Well Saskatchewan for their continuing support of our podcast, Our Food is Our Future. Eat Well Saskatchewan is a free provincial service offered by the College of Pharmacy and Nutrition at the University of Saskatchewan and funded in part by Indigenous Services Canada. Eat Well Saskatchewan is here to help bridge the gap for nutrition services to rural, remote and isolated communities that lack easy access to dietitians. And a huge thank you goes out to the Community Initiatives Fund for our funding and their vision. Without their support, we couldn't tell the stories of our people, our communities, our food and our future. A heartfelt thank you and merci.